Good morning. We are continuing today in our sermon series through the book of Romans. This is going to be Romans chapter 3, 9 through 20. I'm going to give you a quick recap. So if you've missed everything up to this point, here's a very, very brief recap. The book thus far can be summed up like this. The knowledge of God as creator is plain to everyone. And God's righteousness has now been revealed especially to us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, unrighteous man, he receives this gospel. He knows God exists. And yet due to our sin, our disobedience, we suppress this glorious gospel of peace. And we exchange the truth for lies. We take the truth and we put something false there. Thus, all men and women, the Bible says, are without excuse. And based on God's righteous requirements in his law, all of us will stand before a holy God and we will have no excuse. We will know that we are justly condemned due to our sin. Ron preached last week. He talked about how this condemnation towards sin is impartial. Nobody gets off scot-free. Kings, paupers, Jews, Greeks, pastors, prostitutes, take it from point A to point Z. Everyone, everyone will be held accountable under the same holy standards. And nobody will be acquitted based on their fame, based on their fortune, based on their pedigree or outward good deeds. Well, this is a rotten diagnosis for mankind. What's the solution? If mankind is born in iniquity, steeped in original sin, utterly corrupt from birth, rebels by nature, enemies of God, suppressors of truth, inventors of evils, all around scoundrels, scumbags, and scallywags, how on earth can we be saved? You see, we would need new natures. We would need new hearts. We would need new minds. We would need some sort of righteousness outside of our filthy, tainted righteousness. We would need something to be replaced. But I'm getting ahead of myself, aren't I? And before we can fully appreciate the good news, as I talked about two weeks ago, we have to, we have to sit in the bad news for just a little, little bit longer. We need to fully appreciate the sin in our lives. We have to, we have to really see ourselves as rotten before we can see how beautiful God's grace is towards us through Jesus Christ. So this is the passage, Romans 3, 9 through 20. If you read along with me, that would be absolutely wonderful. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. There was a grandfather who after a long day of play with his grandchildren, his grandson, he uh, thought he deserved a nap on the couch, which he did. So he got to the couch 
And the little grandson didn't mind. He knew the grandfather had played with him for a long time. But what he did mind was that the grandfather was an abnormal, an abnormal snorer. Maybe you know one of these, right? The person who does not just saw logs, they're taking down the entire forest, okay? And so he tried everything. He tried all the tried and true methods. He pinched the nose. He, you know, rustled him a little bit. And granddad was not having it. So he got an idea. He said, this is going to work. He goes to the kitchen and he finds some Limburger cheese that had been ripening for far too long. And he grabbed the cheese and he took it back to his grandfather and he crumbled it in his bushy mustache. In the grandfather's mustache. Soon enough, grandfather, this, this room stinks. So he got up. You know, the grandson's snickering in the corner. He gets up. He goes to his room. This room stinks. Gets up, walks out a little bit, goes to the kitchen. The kitchen stinks. Now he's starting to lose his mind. What, what is this smell in the house? He goes outside, opens the door, breathes in the fresh air. The whole world stinks. You see, this is the message of Romans. We, we are... We are walking out into the world and we smell it and we say, this world stinks. And Paul says, you know, there's a reason it stinks. It's you. It's not the world. You made the world stink. You stink. We have the Limburger cheese. The stench of sin is lingering around us all the time. And so we walk around with the Limburger. We're sniffing and everything stinks. Later on, Paul's going to talk about creation itself groaning. Creation itself is longing for the sons of God to be revealed. The earth, the cosmos. You ever thought about that? Jupiter. The entire universe was thrown into subjugation under sin. All because of Adam. All because of our sin. So again, we have to, we have to live here for a little bit. We have to live here before we can taste and see that the Lord is good. We have to come to grips with our own stench, which leads me to our first point. No one is righteous, not even one. Verse 10 starts with, as it is written. And the key thing with Paul is that whenever he says, therefore, or as it is written, he wants us to go somewhere else. He wants us to, to remember something or go back. And so when we see as it is written, we have to go, hey, Paul, where is it written? Paul wants to support his statement in verse 9 that all Jews and Greeks are under sin. So he's going to reinforce this by going to the Old Testament, specifically six verses in the Old Testament. Now, taken separately, these verses are broad in their accusation. Some are aimed at Gentiles, some at David's enemies. David says their throats are open graves. Some are aimed at the Jews themselves. And so the point here that Paul's making is that these verses form an indictment against all of mankind. Nobody, nobody's safe. Everyone is unrighteous. Apart from the mercy and grace of God, people are not good. And unless God breaks into our lives and redeems us, we are without hope. There's a story you may remember reading as a child. I remember reading it because it stuck with me how unfair it was. It's called The Whipping Boy. Do you ever have to read that? I'm not sure if they still make kids read it now. But there was two boys in the story. There's Prince Brat, which is uh, aptly named. And then there's Jimmy, the rat catcher. 
And Prince Brat was a rambunctious, uh, mean-spirited prince. He was always causing trouble because he wanted Jimmy to get whipped in his place. And Jimmy was just a rat catcher who, who got punished every time Prince Brat did something wrong. You could not touch the heir to the throne. And as a child, I remember reading this and thinking how cruel this story was. Why should someone else get punished for the actions of the other person? It's not fair. But you see, this is a good picture of the gospel in reverse, of, of the prince, the king, in fact, coming to our aid, taking the, the punishment we deserve. We're the, we're the rat catchers, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is the great exchange. R.C. Sproul responding to the question of why do bad things happen to good people? He replied, that only ever happened once, and he volunteered. See, there was only one good person who ever lived. And he gave his life for ours. So Paul isn't saying here there's no hope for you miserable sinners. There's no hope here. He's simply echoing Jesus' words. With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. The dead can be made alive. That's good news. So it's at this point now that you can almost contemplate the rebuttal. Someone hearing this who... uh, previously thought they were a good person, right? You've, I'm sure you've talked to people like that. Maybe you were there at one point too. You thought, I am, a good, I am a good person. You know what? I am a good person. You can hear the rebuttal. Okay, I know I'm, all right, I get it, Paul. I get it. I understand it. I'm not a good person. Well, Paul says, no, 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 no. No one understands. Well, okay, okay, but I'm a seeker. I'm looking for God. Paul replies, no one seeks for God. Well, that can't be true. Paul says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. But what about all the good stuff I do, Paul? No one does good. Not even one. He's shutting down every attempt at self-righteousness because all of us have been there. All of us have said, yeah, but Paul, I'm really, I'm not as bad as that guy. Honestly, am I that bad? No, I'm not that bad. Paul says, no, it's not, there's not gradations. It's you're all bad. You're all bad. It pains me to bring this up. Uh, Last time I talked about Jerry Falwell Jr. Well, today I'm going to talk about Ravi Zacharias. The horrendous crimes he committed during his life towards women. And I read this story and I thought, how did nobody catch this? How did none of us see it? The people working with him, why did they not? Surely somebody could have stopped him and helped him. And I, and I realized it's because we thought he was a good person. We, we saw him as a man of God. Nobody could have dreamed that these things were happening. Nobody could dream that any, any of us, if I heard a bad report about any of you, I would say, no, impossible. I know so-and-so. And it's because we have this idea that we're all incapable of doing something horrific like this. There but for the grace of God go all of us. You see, it's painful when stuff like this happens to our quote-unquote heroes, but it humbles us. And it brings us back to Romans. It brings us back here. And when I read this, when I read Paul saying no one's good, I go, yeah, 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 he's dead on. He's dead on because I know my own heart. And if that was, if Ravi was capable of that, of privately living in sin like that and then going on the road and professing God's truth, he was so eloquent, he would do it publicly, What does it say about average Joe Christian? 
What does it say about you or I? What message does this send to the watching world every single time one of our heavy hitters falls from grace? What does it say? This is why we have to emphasize this. This is why we have to live here for a little bit. We have to, we have to come to the reality of fallen man. It's found in verse 9. Namely, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. The church is not a clubhouse for self-righteous do-gooders. This is not the place for you. This is a hospital for sinners. All of us are here because we know we have a problem. We need a Savior. We're, we're, we're supposed to act differently, obviously. We're transformed. We're, we're new creations. We're supposed to act differently and think differently and love differently than the world. But we still carry around this old man of sin with us. He still rears his ugly head. And we still have to put him to death. We have to die to self, live for Christ daily. John Piper puts it this way. He says, fix this firmly in your mind. Sin is mainly a condition of rebellion against God. Not mainly a condition of doing bad things to other people. This is why it is so sad and so pointless when people argue that they're pretty good people. Therefore, and they therefore don't need the gospel. What they mean is that they treat other people decently. They don't steal, kill, lie much, or swear much, and they give to some charities. But that's not the main question. The main question is this. Do you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? Do you love his son, Jesus Christ? Sin is, then, first and foremost, a resistance to finding joy in God alone. And that resistance results in a darkened mind that then suppresses the truth, does not understand God. So the mind that is under sin does not seek God, does not know God, and does not fear God. This leads me to my second point. What does it look like, then, practically, for someone to be under sin? Last week, I went to the dentist. Uh, it, was a, it was so much fun. I had a blast there. I've been putting it off for quite some time because I was worried. Uh, I, I had a bad experience as a kid, and I just thought, oh, I just don't want to go back. You know, I can't stand going to the dentist. So I went back, and I, I expected the worst. I thought there was going to be cavities galore. Gonna... Well, she told me I was actually pretty good. She said, you actually have pretty good teeth. No cavities. Everything's fine. And, uh, but she said, there is something called calculus buildup. You know, and I'm not good at math, so I immediately was like, oh, okay. But it's just, it's like calcium buildup, you know, under teeth. And it can cause, you know, gum disease, bad breath if you let it get too far along. And I thought about one of the perks of wearing these masks has been that you can smell your own breath and you know when you have that bad breath. So maybe that's a warning for us all to go back to the dentist, you know. In God's providence, all of these thoughts sort of coalesced. Here we are at Valentine's Day. And I thought... Maybe some of you, dare I say, maybe some of you are going to kiss a significant other today at one point. And you better be sure you don't have bad breath. Take, a, take some gum or brush your teeth, take some mouthwash or something, you know, spare them the pain. But this is what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the text being under sin. Part of what that means is having spiritual halitosis, having spiritual bad breath, just like the grandfather. You, you smell it all the time. You stink. Listen to this, verses 13 through 14. Their throat is an open grave. Ugh, that imagery. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under the lips. They're poisonous. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now, there are so many applications here, but the first application is that this spiritual halitosis, this spiritual bad breath that we all have, it relates first 
to the way we act towards God. Every single time we sin towards others, we're primarily first and foremost sinning against our Heavenly Father. And this is so key to understanding how we, we react to each other and how we live in relationship. Think about this. Pa- parents. Okay? Parents. When your child disobeys you, they, uh, you have a rule in place and they've disobeyed it for the last time. Whatever the last time is, right? What do you think? You think, how dare this child usurp my sovereign rule? They have disobeyed the provider. I am the parent. They have trampled under my authority. But what this text is actually saying is that what they've really done is broken the fifth commandment. You see, it's not, it's not so much that they're in rebellion against you. It's that they're in rebellion against God's perfect law. Now, I'm going to flip it. The kids. Kids, I want you to listen up. All right, if you're a child, a kid, listen to me. Now, imagine your parents. I know this is impossible to imagine. But imagine they've spoken too harshly to you. Imagine they've made a rule that they can't keep themselves. And they've broken it. And now they go, well, I'm, I'm the dad. Or I'm the mom. Now, are they against you as their child or do they love you? They love you. What they've done now is they've exasperated you. And they've provoked you to anger. And we've all done this. You see, we, we, we're, all, we're all disobeying God's commands in one form or another. And then you take this concept and you apply it to everyone. Apply it to your, your spouses, your boss, your neighbor, your college students, single people, married people, everyone due to our sin, is going to act like this at one point or another. But when you realize this, that the other person is not, it's not so much that they're warring against you, they're actually warring against God's holy laws. Now I can have compassion for my children. Now I can have mercy towards my coworkers or my boss. I I can say, you know what, that person, they're acting like that. I don't know why they're acting like that, but something is going on in their life. I need need to have compassion and mercy for them. Because what really is happening is they're, 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 they're dealing with their sin. God is slow to anger. He's patient with us. And because of that, we should then have sympathy and forgiveness for others, just as our Heavenly Father has forgiveness for us. Secondly, being under sin means we have to tame our tongues. This is nothing new for all of us. We need mouthwash for our rotten breath. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. I want you to go read James 3 later today and just be reminded of that little member, that little tongue, and how much trouble it can get you in. In in high school, it got me in so much trouble. All the time. Because what, often what I said was not what my brain wanted me to say. I just said the first thing that popped into my head. With our tongues, we praise our Lord and Father. And James says the remarkable thing is that we can leave church, get in our cars, and then go trash somebody behind their backs. Isn't that remarkable? How hypocritical we can be. It's that simple. We're meant to live lives of... Uh, we're meant to speak life... We're meant to speak truth and love. We're meant to encourage, build one another up. But here the mouth of the sinner, apart from the spirit of grace, only brings curses. And you know people like this. You've been a person like this, I'm sure, poisoning relationships. 
It ruins marriages, it burns bridges, it causes endless verbal arguments. This life under sin, it's a shallow form of hell on earth for some people. And to this point, that a good question should be asked of all of us. Is, is this your life? Is your life one of stress and anxiety and constant conflict with God and others? You're, you're constantly jumping from relationship to relationship, from job to job, from friendship to friendship. I mean, do you know anybody like this? I know plenty of people like this. And what I want to do is I want to ask them, I want to say, what has your worldview accomplished? What, what has all of these lies that you've been living, these the exchanging of truth, what has this accomplished? What, where has it gotten you? Are you happy? Because people call us Christians miserable people. They think we're miserable, following these rules and whatnot. But I look at the world and I think they're miserable. Where has the worldview gotten you? But now we look to Jesus. What is Jesus? What's his example? He only ever spoke truth and love. He offered up prayers of forgiveness for his enemies as they crucified him on the cross. He was meek and gentle, strong, courageous. He alone can tame our tongues. And he'll do it if we ask him. Thirdly, being under sin is not just a way of speaking, but Paul says it's a way of action. He says their feet are swift to shed blood. Verse 16, ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, some of you may know the controversial rapper Kanye West. He recently said on a podcast, he said, when you remove the fear and love of God, you create the fear and love of everything else. And that really stuck out to me. Because this is what happens when God is not sought or known or reverenced in our world. They have replaced the fear of God with fear of man, fear of government, fear of uncertainty, fear of death, fear of not being loved, fear of not being accepted, fear of everything. And living in constant fear causes people to act crazy, causes them to act irrationally. So their feet are swift to shed blood. Their lives are marked by constant tragedy, misery, peace is far from them. Again, you have to think about the sin always comes back ultimately to our relationship with God. If you, are, if you have a, a warring relationship with God, if you do not have peace with God, you will have no peace with mankind. And so, of course, they don't know peace. Well, praise be to God that he restrains our evil. He restrains our evil through his law and through the things like government, police, and judges, because of God's common grace and his restraint upon sin, the world and everyone in it is not as bad as they could be. And you think you hear that and you go, that's crazy to think about. Everyone's not as bad as they could be. Yes, that's the truth. That's, thank, thank the Lord for that. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He gives us grace upon grace upon grace. Which leads me to my final point. Freedom comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Paul's using the word, the term law here, with regards to the Old Testament verses that he just quoted prior. So he's saying the Jews 
who are under the special revelation have no excuse. The Gentiles who are under the general revelation of God, of nature, they have no excuse. Both groups are under God's law, whether they acknowledge it or not, and therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. So then what is the point of God's law, you might ask? If we can't keep it, we can't be justified by it, what is the point? Well, Paul says the law brings death because of this. The law brings death because we can't keep it, we know it, we don't adhere to it, and so the law, which is good, actually becomes something bad for us, apart from Christ. But here's, here's the three uses of the law. It's important to understand this because I think if you talk to most people, they're very confused on what the law is. You know, it's a very misunderstood aspect of Christianity. So the first thing that the law does is it curbs our sin. This is the civil use of the law. So this is through fear or punishment. Uh, this is through the police force, the judges, the government. Non, this keeps both Christians and non-Christians under check. Do not kill. Do not steal. These are parts of the penal code. And these keep us in, in society curbed. Secondly, the law acts as a mirror. It reflects to us both the perfect righteousness of God and our own sinfulness and shortcomings. St. Augustine wrote, The law bids us, as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it, to know how to ask the help of grace. And so we look at the law, and we can become wearied under doing good, and so we, go, we run to the cross. We run to Jesus, and we say, more, we need more grace I, I, I need it today. I need the every hour. New mercies. And thirdly, it's a guide. This is the use of the law that applies only to Christians. It's a guide to the regenerate and to the good works that God has planned for them to do in advance. That's Ephesians 2, verse 10. The law tells God's children what will please their Heavenly Father. We're free from the law as a system of salvation, but now we're under the law of Christ. The Bible says the law of Christ. This is 1 Corinthians 9.21. And you may say, well, okay, then what's the law of Christ? What does that mean? We're free from the system of work salvation, but what does it mean to be under the law of Christ? Well, Paul answers this in Galatians 6.2. He says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So just in closing, let me summarize everything we've talked up to this point. Both Jew and Greek have the revelation of God. The Jews have special revelation. We have special revelation. The Gentiles have natural revelation. So somebody who has never been in church knows that there's a creator, knows that there's a God. We're all born under sin. We're born under the law of God. And due to our corruption, none of us can fulfill the law perfectly. Thus, we're rightly and justly condemned as sinners before God. However, however, there's a way to be free of both the power of sin and fulfill the law at the same time. And if you look in your Bible, we're mere inches, centimeters away from the answer. And I'm going to ask Ron to excuse me as I step on his toes a little bit, but I'm going to read verses 21 through 22, if you would read along with me. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. You see, Paul is saying the answer to everything I've just talked about in the last three chapters, the answer to the problem of sin, 
the problem that we have with the law. All of this is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And it was always the purpose. That was always plan A. This is why Abraham is counted as righteous due to his faith in the coming Messiah. God's righteousness comes to historical realization through Jesus Christ. All the law, all the prophets, everything in the Old Testament, it all points to Jesus Christ. So for all those who now put their faith in Jesus Christ, his perfect alien righteousness is now given to them in full. What does it mean? It means you have peace with God. It means we can be loved and known by the Creator. It means we are free from fear of everything else and instead have a holy reverence for our Lord. It means we're no longer under sin, under the law. Instead, we are under the grace canopy of Jesus Christ. And what does Christ demand of us? What is, you know, these Christians who have these undesirable, miserable lives, what is, what are, what is the rules that Christ places upon us? Love God, love neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. So we're free. We're free. We're free from the treadmill of works. We're free from having to pretend like we're good people. And this doesn't mean we're lawless. It actually means the exact opposite. It means now we are free to do the good works that, that God has laid in advance for us to do. It means we have joy and zeal and love for God and love for man. And if you are in Christ, this should give you such a sweet Blessed assurance. Just such a sweet, blessed assurance of your salvation that you are his, that he is yours, and that it depends solely on his grip of you, not your grip of him. You see, because he has called you out of darkness. He has called you from death to life. Not bad breath, not snoring, not angels, nor demons. (laughs) Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. Well, what do we do with this freedom? Now we're saved, what are we saved for? What do we do for the freedom? According to the Bureau of Justice, a nine-year study was concluded in 2018 and showed that an estimated 68% of released prisoners were rearrested within three years. 79% were, were rearrested within six years and 83% within nine years. 83% of people released from jail were rearrested within nine years. You see, freedom is terrifying for some people. They're scared to be free. It's, it's hard to be free. The Israelites longed to go back to Egypt because they said, didn't we have it better in Egypt? I mean, I'll be a slave. I'll go back. And as Christians, how many of us have have experienced that freedom and it scares us or we, we backslide or we want to go back and, well, Egypt was so nice. You know, I miss doing what I used to do. I miss that old addiction. I miss those things. Paul Tripp says, how are we supposed to love our enemies when we have a hard time loving the people we're even supposed to love? You see, this freedom that we enjoy in Jesus Christ can, can be very difficult for us. Love God, love neighbor. That seems so simple, doesn't it? Very quickly to end us, here's some some fast advice on how to live free. First, surround yourself with free men and women. Get yourself an accountability partner, a friend that you can confide everything in. My heart breaks for these pastors who are islands. I've known so many people who are in ministry who 
feel like they can't share things with other people or they feel like they can't go to people and ask for help. You have to have someone you can ask for help. We all need each other. And so find someone who you can keep, keep you accountable. Look to Christ. Look to his people. They will lead you into the promised land. Every time you want to go back to slavery, I will grab you. I'll say, come on, don't go back in there. And then you grab me. Let's not go back to the prison. Secondly, look for ways to love your neighbors. If you want to know the easiest way to start loving your neighbor, it's to actually do it. That's revolutionary. This year, I'm going to have some service opportunities. I'm going to be presenting them to the congregation. And I would love nothing more than for entire families, for all ages, to come and join us as we do service work. You see, we want to go out into our community. We want to, we want to bring the freedom to the prisons. Wherever the lowly are, wherever the poor and downtrodden are, that's where the heart of God is. And so we want to go as his people to those places. We want to liberate more, more, more freedom, more people. Come. Thirdly, you have to live as a free man and a free woman. You have to actually live as God has called you to live. He's set you free. Christ has set you free. Now live like a free person. What does this mean? Well, it means being real with yourself, being real with God, being real with others. Stop pretending, stop living a lie. Do you think, do you think Ravi Zacharias, Pastor Ravi Zacharias, doctor, whatever you want to call him, do you think he ever felt free in his life? Knowing what we know now, do you think he, can you imagine the tremendous weight he must have felt of sin from day in and day out of living these two drastically hidden lives. I mean, can you imagine? I can't even, I, I was thinking about it. Like, how would I even keep that hidden? And yet this man did it. And a lot of people see the church as, well, I could never tell them that. I could never go to the church and be that way because I would be condemned. I would be judged. And so they keep these lives hidden and they never repent. They never confess because they, they don't know where to go. And so we need to have mercy and forgiveness. We need to be free. We need to be open with each other and say, listen, you're welcome here because I was just like you. And in a lot of ways, I'm still dealing with X or Y or Z, whatever you're dealing with. You're welcome here. Be free here. Come here. Come. You're not going to be judged here. This doesn't mean we give a pass to sin. It just means we call it out and we rejoice when people repent over it together. And then you have to ask yourself, do you have a hidden sin? Are you living a separate life? Would you be ashamed if I knew about the second life you're living right now? If your wife knew? If your husband Are you living like Robbie Zacharias? Cast off the weight. Be free today. Cast the burden off. Do not live like that anymore. It's just tremendous. I just have so much compassion for that. Finally, 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 hide yourself in the arms of Jesus Christ. He's the king. He's the king. He already knows about your sin. He knew about it, and that's why he died. He died to save you from that sin. He died to free you from that sin. And I want you to try to imagine a more safer, more freeing place right now than the throne room of heaven. Is there any safer place you could possibly be? If you hide yourself in Jesus Christ, what do you have to fear? Death, enemies, taxes, nothing can touch you. Listen to David in Psalm 4.8. He 
He says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. After this year, who, after 2020, who here needs some rest? Who here needs some peace? Who here needs some some anxiety taken off their shoulders? Who here wants to dwell in safety? God offers that today. And as I pray on this Valentine's Day, for God to love the world that he did what? He gave. He gave the ultimate gift of love. He gave the gift that none of us deserved. And he did what was impossible for us. This is the great exchange. He gave his son, Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous, the prince of peace for the rat catcher. He traded his life for ours so that we might know God, so that we might come to God, and that we might be saved. I want you to receive that gift today. If you are fighting that, if you're warring against that, today you could leave this place a new creation. That's good news. That's really good news. Let's pray.